from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading comes from Psalms 147, verses 1 through 11. Please turn with me to page 550. Listen for and hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. For he is gracious, and his song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up in Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the animal their food and to the young ravens when they cry. His delight is not in the strength of a horse nor his pleasure in the speed of a runner. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He grants peace within your borders. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our second text is from the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 21 to 31. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely they are, are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Or, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
God does not faint or grow weary. God's understanding is unsearchable. God gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, toward the end of November 2017, I began charting out the preaching schedule and the preaching direction for the first quarter of 2018. And a part of this planning had me reviewing the lectionary texts. Those are the texts on a three-year cycle that many churches follow as, as part of the rhythm of their liturgical and worship life. And I was interested to see what the lectionary texts were for the Sundays in January, February, and March of 2018. As I came to the Old Testament text for today, today's Old Testament text, Sunday, February 4th, and as a lifelong Philadelphia Eagles fan, well, my interest was piqued a little bit. The Old Testament text assigned for today, February 4th, is Isaiah 40. It includes some of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Now for the record... I chose to preach on this text. I chose the title for my sermon, On Wings Like Eagles, on November 28th. You can ask Jens, I sent it to him to make preparations for today. You can go to my Facebook, I name it as such, on November 28th, that I'm going to preach it on this particular day, not knowing that 68 days from that day, my beloved football team would be playing in the Super Bowl. Also, for the record, I have taken to rooting for the Falcons since I've moved here. I was at the Dome. Oh, look at that. There we go. I was, I was some diehards. I was at the Dome for the NFC Championship game. I even wore a Falcons shirt. I root for them when they're not playing the Eagles because as long as I think I'm going to be alive, my heart will belong to that franchise. See, in my growing up years, I remember our Sundays having a very specific routine. In the little row home I grew up in in northeast Philadelphia, a wonderful blue-collar neighborhood there, that we would go to Mass, oftentimes walking to church. Go to Mass and we'd come home, and my mother would cook a delicious brunch. I'd get the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'd read the sports section for all the pregame and predictions, and then we would watch the Eagles. I'd watch the game with my dad, and then with my mom on occasion. And then as my brother got older, we started watching 
as a whole family. It was something that we did together. We cheered together. We booed together. I don't know if you know this, but Philadelphians are really good at booing. And we shared our hopes and dreams that one day the Eagles would win the Super Bowl. It never happened in my father's lifetime. A diehard fan. Truth be told, I'm not sure if it'll ever happen in my lifetime. A big part of my affinity for this franchise is connected to memory. It's connected to the things I remember as a boy, as a teenager growing up. It's connected to memories with my dad and my mother and my brother, watching game after game after game. It's connected to the memories of great camaraderie with friends and, and fellow fans rejoicing in our very limited triumphs and wallowing in our many, many defeats. It's connected to memories that perpetuate my rooting interest even to this day and my commitment to follow this team. And those memories, like, like memories we possess in different areas of our life, those memories are powerful. They're powerful. And they're motivating, right? I mean, in this case, they motivate me to watch. They motivate me to spend way too much time diving into stats. They motivate me to, to get excited and to root for them. And tonight they will motivate me to cheer them on as hard as I can for them to beat the greatest quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, perhaps the greatest coach of all time, Bill Belichick, to avenge the Falcons' loss from last year. <laughs> and beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Memories at the heart of our text from Isaiah 40. This chapter is the opening of what's called Second Isaiah. Isaiah, it's believed by many scholars to have been written by three distinct authors. And Second Isaiah is boundaried by chapters 40 through 55. And within these chapters, we find some of the most rich, deep, and poetic theology and theological concepts in the whole of the scriptures. Second Isaiah at its very core has a specific purpose in mind, something that the writer wants to communicate in full measure. That is that God, known as Yahweh, this God is above all other gods. That there is no God greater than this God. And that this prophet, known as Isaiah, or second Isaiah, wants to make it clear to the house of Israel that this God will always be God for you. Not only that, this God will save. Not only that, this God will use you to save the world. It's in these chapters that we find words that invite the people of God to see their purpose in larger terms, to see that God is bringing even Gentiles into reconciliation and redemption with a God who is above all other gods. That the Gentile also has a share of the covenant made with Abraham. The context of these of these chapters are set against the backdrop of something we talked about a few weeks ago, the Babylonian exile. The people of God have had their land invaded. Their capital city was sacked. The king was cast out. Many citizens were cast out. They had to go and live in a foreign land, go live in, in Babylon. And the citizens and the people have grown tired 
and they're weary. They've longed for home for far too long. They long to be restored. And, and they begin to wonder in their worship. They begin to wonder in their prayer life. They begin to wonder in their theology. Has God abandoned us? Has God left us? Have our prayers fallen on deaf ears? Is our God still the one true, all-powerful God? Against the backdrop of these questions comes the beautiful, poetic, deeply theological words of Isaiah 40. And to really, to best understand what's happening here, I want to invite you in your own mind's eye to see this scene as a courtroom scene. I want you to imagine a, a courtroom scene, and I, I want you to imagine that on the witness stand is the whole of the people of God. They're serving two distinct roles here in this setting. They're both a defendant, but they're also a witness. And the lawyer who's about to examine them is second Isaiah. And the lawyer stands up from their table and moves toward the witness stand and says, I have some questions for you, O people of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And the defendant witness, the, the people of God, they have no room to plead the fifth. They have no room to say, I don't recall what was said at that conversation. An answer is required. The lawyer, second Isaiah, is saying, do you not remember who God is? Do you not remember what God has, has done? Do you not remember that God has created you? Do you not remember it's God who's called you by name the way we remember these children have been called by name by God? Do you not remember that Yahweh is above all other gods? Do you not remember that God is faithful and keeps God's promises? Do you not remember? The writer is saying, look, I know you're tired. I know you're weird. I know it's been a long haul. I know you desire to come home. I know you're in a tough spot. I know you want justice and redemption. And because you want all those things, because you desire all those things, I'm going to challenge you to remember. Remember and call to mind who it is you worship and who it is you call God. Bill Carl is the former president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he now pastors a Presbyterian church in Birmingham, Alabama. He talks about Isaiah 40 in a very compelling and interesting way. He says, Isaiah 40 seems to him to be a guard, to be almost like a medicine for the disease of theological amnesia. Theological amnesia. One of my favorite films is, is called Memento. It tells the story of a man who's trying to solve a mystery of a great tragedy that he's experienced in his life. The problem is, is that he cannot create new memories. He cannot create new memories. He remembers who he is, but he meets some, someone or he, he discovers some important salient fact about this mystery that he's trying to solve, this mystery that he's trying to live into, and he can't remember it five minutes later. So he's taken to a particular habit. He starts taking Polaroid pictures of people and starts writing down important facts, and he even uses ink and begins to tattoo his body as a memento to remember as he engages this deep and profound mystery. In a like manner, I think Isaiah 40 is the people's memento. 
It's the ink tattooed on their hearts. It's that thing like the waters of baptism, even when the baby wipes it away, that will always remain, that will always be there. But theological amnesia nonetheless still sets in, especially when we find ourselves in crisis, the way the people of God found themselves in crisis during the Babylonian exile. We receive some hard news. We, We lose a job. We're stuck in a job. A relationship ends, a loved one dies, a depression hangs over us, we're sleeping out on the streets, a fog of meaninglessness looms overhead, deep frustration or anger accompanies us all the days of our living, an addiction holds us in its power, and we forget who God is. We meet these moments of crises, and we forget We forget who God is. As many of you know, we've had a lot of death in our church family over these past few weeks. In fact, at the writing of this sermon, we had 10 deaths in our church family in a seven-week period. It's been a really hard season for our church and for these families. I'm grateful for our pastoral staff, for our lay staff, for our lay leaders who have shown great compassion, who've shown great hospitality and care and mercy in ministry with these households. Two Thursdays ago, we led the memorial service for a woman named Emily Hill Ferguson. Emily has been a member of this church since 2001. She was 41 years old when she died with breast cancer. She and her husband, Brad, were married right here. Her children were baptized, all three of them, they're all ages 15 and under, were baptized right here at this font. And Emily was a person of deep and profound and transparent faith. She lived in her faith. She died in her faith. And and maybe you've met someone like this, but she was the type of person that when you meet her, your own faith is transformed. Have you met someone like that? Your own faith is challenged or expanded. As Emily was was suffering and and struggling these past two years, one of her favorite texts of scriptures, it may not be surprising to you, but, but one of her favorite texts was the book of Job. Job tells the story of one man's deep and and profound suffering and his pursuit of God in the midst of that suffering. Toward the end of the story, Job sort of flips the script on Isaiah. It's not the people that are on trial. It's not Job that is on trial. Rather, Job wants to put God on trial. And Job protests his innocence. He enters into evidence his righteousness and his upright living. He demands that God make the case against him as to why he has to go through this suffering. And in Job chapters 38 to 42, God doesn't give an explanation. God doesn't give a defense as to what's happening to Job. There is a mystery that will not be solved in the pages of this story as it relates to the question of why. Why is this happening to me? It reminds me of a powerful text in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. You know, in our age where there are no secrets, 
Or we try hard to keep secrets. Where information is, is right at our fingertips. It's hard to imagine that there are such things being kept secret. On this side of the age to come, Job and Emily and all of us will often be perplexed by the secret things. By the mystery that is the sovereignty and the providence of God. What Job and Emily did discover, and I think what we can discover this morning, is the nature and the character of this God, which isn't hidden from us. Who this God is, is not kept secret. In those closing five chapters of the book of Job, there is this relentless questioning of Job by God that mirrors the words of Isaiah 40. Some of those words sound like this. Were you there, Job, when I hung the moon in the sky? Were you there, Job, when I gave the stars their names? Were you there, Job, when I designed the clouds to bring moisture? Were you there when I put lightning to flash in the sky? Were, were you there at the foundations of time? Are you the one who is Lord over heaven and earth? Question after question over these five chapters comes from God to Job. And the reader is left thinking only God is God. Only God is God. And in this inquiry, in this conversation, we infer that it's better to trust God in mystery and in suffering than to forget God altogether in the midst of it. It's better to trust God in the mystery and in the suffering than to forget God altogether. Emily's favorite questions from these chapters, she loved these five chapters. She had them underlined in her Bible, but her favorite were these. God asks, Job, is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars? and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? On one occasion, Emily had just read these words as part of her morning devotional when one of her caregivers called out from another room, Emily, Emily, come here, you've got to see this. And she came to the front part of the house and she looked out the window and on her car was perched this beautiful, majestic hawk perched there in perfect stillness. And she remembered. She remembered whose wisdom it is that calls this hawk to soar, whose command it is that raises the eagle up. She remembered that she belonged to this God. The same God who called this hawk into being is her God too in life and in death, she remembered the words of Isaiah 40. She also underlined these in her Bible. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God will not grow tired or weary. God's understanding is unsearchable. The Lord gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even young people will grow tired and weary and they will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. And so I ask you this morning, who is suffering with some theological amnesia in this hour? Who among us in our exhaustion or our grief or our powerlessness or restlessness or our longing 
has forgotten who this God really is. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Church, we have known and we have heard. And so now is the time to remember. I want to close with this very brief final thought. There's a promise embedded in this verse in Isaiah 40. For all who have grown faint or weary or have fallen exhausted, there's a promise here. Those who wait for the Lord, it says, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. little Presbyterian nerdiness here. We just came off of our congregational meeting. I think it's appropriate. In the book of order, language is really important. Anytime there is a shadow, it means it's a non-negotiable. You shall celebrate the sacrament of baptism. You shall celebrate the sacrament of communion. You shall hear the word proclaim and worship. You shall ordain women into ministry. But then there's other things that, that are mentioned in our book of order, in our constitution that says you may worship in a sanctuary. You may worship outside. You may worship in a chapel. This language comes to us as a non-negotiable. Those who wait shall be raised up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It's a promise that God is making by God's grace. We have the grace and the strength and the memory we need to meet suffering. We have it to meet the mystery we have it to meet whatever has made you tired. Have you not known? Have you not heard? We have. So remember, and remember that God remembers you. Thanks be to God. Amen.